1: Test your
0: luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday,
1: I will call upon you to do a service for
0: me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com.
1: Welcome to the family.
2: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to episode 227 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the one, the only, the magnificent, Daniel Feinberg, THR's chief tv critic how's it going my friend
1: oh it goes so uh leslie who was your favorite either actress or character from 227 jackie jackie i mean all, that's all of them it was no that, it was the, a great show you, you gave a, on it. you gave an answer you're supposed to stick to the answer you can't just give an all of them but i i feel like the answer is uh you know my answer at least is future oscar winner uh, regina king but you know also what? also true <laughs> yeah anyway so this
2: I mean, podcast I, is- I took algebra two twice with with uh, regina king's sister to that for that man, is that
1: true? I had yes, that's true. I, I had no idea that was a piece of very, very strange Leslie/slash/Regina King based trivia.
2: Yep, shout out to LACES, Los Angeles Center for Enriched Studies, class of 92, and Mr. Buckner, our dreaded algebra teacher who we came to love, uh, despite the fact that he had the hardest class in school, and we failed it the first time.
1: <laughs> Phew, i I feel like I feel like when this is all over, we need to have Regina King on the podcast to talk about her sister in algebra.
2: Yeah, no, we don't. It was it was it was rough.
1: <laughs> I'm ju- I'm just pondering the there's information a, a that's that to me. That,
2: that what I do doesn't involve math. <laughs>
1: I I understand. I mean, my my own struggles in algebra, geometry, etc. Probably wouldn't be an entertaining subject for a podcast, but they are real.
2: I don't know where to go from here, Dan. Where do you want to go from here? You know, you, you <laughs> okay, fine. This
1: Okay, fine. This is not a 227-centric, very special episode. What do we got on tap this week, Leslie?
2: Well, lots of strike updates. We have a very special guest this week with Simon Rich, the creator of, of the former FXX comedy Man-Seeking Woman, who is going to open up about some really scary shit involving artificial intelligence and in the writer's rooms. So, Yeah lots to get to so
1: number 1 up first we've been doing this for a couple of weeks with the paucity of headlines but we've been leading off each podcast with a regular mailbag or mini mailbag segment y'all have been doing a great job of giving us questions which you can email us about at tvs top 5 at thr.com tvs top 5 the numeral 5 at thr.com anything else you want to plug there Leslie?
2: Yeah, I've got a handful of stickers left. If you'd like one, shoot us an email with your address, and uh, yeah, we'll send you one.
1: Our first question this week is for Leslie, and it comes from Cameron. It involves a little bit of uh, terminology specification. Cameron asks, could you please explain what you mean by amortizing costs over multiple seasons? I've heard you mention it as a reason for Halo's second season renewal.
2: Yeah, basically, you know, I'm going to use some made up numbers here because I can't remember the budget on Halo to save my life right now. But let's say that Halo season one, that Paramount spent $200 million to make Halo in its first season. And they may not be super excited with the ratings, but they've already invested such a huge chunk of change in, in this that they're going to say, okay, well, maybe we can do a second season out of this. And that way we can take the 200 million and stretch it so that it, it doesn't only cover the cost of one batch of 10 episodes. Hypothetically, I have no idea how many episodes Halo season one was. But let's <laughs> say we can do it over 20 episodes. That makes the cost per episode fall dramatically, but it also helps cover some of the, the costs in season two. So they're trying to make a second season. It's basically, think of it like a sponge and you're trying to squeeze more water out of it to get into a second season. And that's what's happened, what I mean by amortizing costs.
1: Does that make sense, Dan? It does. Yeah. No. It's it's basically you you lay you, there's a large outlay at a certain point, and if you use something only once, then you're putting all of that money on one usage. If you use it multiple times, then you get more value out of it. So yeah. it's, if you're going
2: to reuse yeah. the sets for Halo for season two, you're getting more use out of that. If you're going to going to reuse the costumes that you've spent a lot of money to manufacture you're going to get more more use out of it the same ideas you know and when you when i think of it too like the first thing that jumps to my mind is a big budget series like lord of the rings right where they spent not only 250 million on rights alone global rights for the show that's before they even made it or cast it or built the sets or did anything or hired anyone so that you know at, at a certain point the more you you get out of your initial spend the better it is for you. So that that's why some of these, these big budget shows may get second seasons despite unclear metrics on success.
1: Exactly. Makes total sense.
2: Our next question comes from Tavon who writes with a question about the recently announced Television Critics Awards. Sorry, take two who writes with a question about the Television Critics Association Awards, specifically the creation of the new category for family programming, which was a category that was won by Miss Marvel. The question is, is, why is there a need for this category when there's already a youth programming category? Dan, this one is definitely for you.
1: Yeah, and and Tavon sort of, Tavon approached the question and the minor change to the TCA awards and the basic change is that there's always been a kind of youth programming or family programming or whatever. And this year there were two and, and one is youth programming, which went to Bluey and then family programming that went to Miss Marble and Tavon's issue with the new category and its necessity was a kind of upward looking Issue. Uh the question, which was more involved than this, mentioned a lot of shows that have very, very similar demographics slash content ratings uh to what the shows in the family category have. And so the question of why a show like Miss Marvel or American-born Chinese would be put into a family category, whereas a show like an Elementary or Stranger Things, whatever shows that are also absolutely shows that families could watch together are put into drama and whatever categories that they are not ghettoized or positioned as family shows. And uh, Tavon's question also sort of suggested that the idea was that that it was a place to honor these shows because we felt like we might be embarrassed if we put them into one of the main categories. Versus, if you put them in their own little compartmentalized category, and I think that I, embarrassed would be the wrong word. I, I think it would be very, very hard for a show like Miss Marvel or American Board Chinese to compete in a drama category against Succession. I, you know that that's just a very practical thing. I, th- I think the difference in that field and the family field is kind of the difference between shows that are intended for younger viewers but the family can all enjoy together versus shows that are designed for older viewers but the family can enjoy them together. Like I I think that if, for example, a show like Abbott Elementary, if one of the students, they're all there but – for the most part, they aren't characters. If one of them was kind of a regular or something, maybe you would think the show skewed younger, but no, I, I feel like it's a show that probably aims for an adult audience, but absolutely can be watched by families. And I think that that might be different from a show like American born Chinese, which absolutely could be watched by, uh, you know, old viewers as well. I mean, I watched it, I enjoyed it and I'm ancient and decrepit. So what do I know? I'm surely not a youth. Uh and, and like, I, I like the idea of having that category so that those shows can get recognition. And I, I don't view it as being an embarrassment to say that. I think maybe having Miss Marvel being the winner does, at least in this year, kind of muddy the, the waters a little bit because it's a Marvel show. And we think of Marvel shows as just being kind of for everybody. And there wasn't really the perception, OK, this is the YA Marvel show, even if that kind of what it was, was what it was. And maybe if American-born Chinese had, uh, I, I I don't know, maybe if American-born Chinese had not been positioned as being a sort of young skewing show, it would have been taken more seriously because I think it's a really, really good show and just didn't get the respect it deserved, honestly. So yeah, but, but the real answer to the question is that it's not about the upward aging side of the category, the family category, it's really about the lower side. It, the the splitting of the two awards was much more about the desire to protect the youth category, which is intended for shows that are actually for children. And maybe adults can watch as well, because you know, parents should supervise what their children watch and all of that, but it still is primarily for shows that are for a seven and under audience. And the, the reality of the TCA is, well, the reality of television criticism in general is that there simply aren't as many people reviewing shows for that demographic as for an older demographic. And so when that category or those two categories were smushed together and there was not guidance, there was often the opportunity for basically a mainstream YA type show, something on Freeform slash ABC Family, etc., to win that category because in the critical community, there was simply a larger number of people who watched those shows and and reviewed them. So they just had a large advantage. Um, And so there were specific members who do write about youth programming and who are parents who felt like that particular niche was a valuable one that was being potentially neglected. And so this was a way to make sure that there are still awards for specifically The Blueys, the Sesame Streets, the Daniel Tigers, the Elena of Avalors, whatever whatever you want to put in that category uh, to be recognized and to not get shoved out of the way simply because more people like whatever the slightly more popular, slightly more visible show is for young viewers that happens to be on a bigger platform and that happens to be aimed at 15-year-olds because we all admit that we have our inner 15-year-old. It's harder to admit that we have an inner 7-year-old. And so, you know, I would never review a Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, not because I don't respect what it does, but because I simply can't get into that headspace as well as I might like to. So, yeah, that's that's the reason for the split more than anything. It's, it's much less that we are trying to find a way to recognize YA shows, but we're embarrassed to recognize them in bigger categories, it's much more that there needs to be a place to honor those shows. But more importantly, that place needs to not be a place where it takes away from youth programming. And so that's that's the logic. And our last question for this week, and again, you can always email us at... TV's top 5 at THR.com, TV's top 5, the numeral 5 at THR.com. Our next question comes from Anna, who is a senior film student at UT Austin. She just completed an internship, and she has general concerns, as she might. She writes, I know that the strikes will be good in the long term, but for now I feel like uh, I all I am receiving is bad and scary news. So my question for y'all is... What are some silver linings that you have seen throughout the last hundred or so days? And what can I look forward to as I graduate in a few months? Leslie, you start out giving Anna some good news, if you can.
2: I mean, the good news, it's hard to really quantify what's good and what's bad right now in terms of what we actually know about the strikes. So I'm going gonna—I'm choosing to kind of look at things through the, the lens of the showrunners that I spoke with for a feature that I did last week tied to the 100th day of the writer's strike about how people are staying creative during this time because they're unable to work on any studio-backed projects. So a lot of people that I spoke with are turning to to different mediums, whether it's theater or poetry, et cetera. Some people are writing the passion projects that they've always wanted to write but haven't ever had the time or the the interest from anyone else to do it. So they're writing for themselves. And usually what comes out of writing something that's so deeply personal is, well, you get good art out of it. And that's honestly what I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes out of, of the strike is everyone. A lot of the people that we know right now are indeed writing for themselves. So, if you're going to see some of their big pra- passion projects or things that are deeply personal i want to i want to see what those those shows look like um you know in in terms of you know the the bad and scary news and the silver linings it's like you know people are spending a lot of more time with family i'm i'm certainly getting a lot more time with my wife than i did when she was running and working on Ga- gotham nights and you know that's happening all over town the guild is as, as united as i've certainly seen in my career you know and but yeah, there is a lot of, of bad and scary news that, that's coming out. Like, we don't know when this is going to end. You know, we'll get to that, you know, the latest negotiations in the, our next topic. But what's happening? Like, we don't know when this is this is ending or how long SAG will go, go on. But one of the things that I'm curious about is when there are deals with both the writers and the performers unions, what... Peak TV looks like if this is truly the end of it. We you know, we've already seen the wave of, you know, things that happened after COVID where we've had a lot of shows that were dropped largely because of scheduling issues or logistical, you know, issues like they couldn't film it because of the pandemic and the increased costs and everything else. So I'll be curious if that happens here where a lot of these platforms are saying, okay, well we don't want as much because we can't afford as much because there's going to be obviously pay, you know, increased rates across you know, for residuals and everything else, that's part of the contract. That's the basic requirement. People get pay raises annually. You know, there, there are things that, that could be good that come out of this, you know, like what happens if they decide that if, they being the collective buyers and they sit sit here and say like, okay, well we're Netflix and we're not going to buy 65 movies a year and we're not going to make 400 scripted shows a year or whatever their numbers are. I'm, I'm obviously exaggerating, but if they take a more controlled approach to what their spending is, and they focus on quality instead of quantity and trying to be everything for everyone. And it goes kind of back to something that Landgraf said many times is that brand matters. So what is the brand of max going forward? What is the brand of Netflix going forward after all of this? That's what I'm interested in seeing. So. I hope that answers your question Anna but uh yeah I'm I'm excited that there people are actually interested in this industry and and getting getting into it right now cuz yeah it's it's scary and depressing
1: I'd also add that I would like to hope that in this moment that out of this moment of solidarity and kind of togetherness on the lines and the the conversations that people are having about their professional needs and their professional work environment, I would like to hope that out of it comes a certain increased level of, of empathy. And I think that only benefits the industry in an ideal world, that if you understand better the jobs that the other people are doing and their needs and, and the insecurities of their shifting, workplaces and workforces that maybe it would make you a better collaborator going forward. I I think that's something that, you know, that, that Anna and film school students know is that one of the things when you're a film school student is that you're doing everything and you're doing everything for your colleagues. And one week you might be shooting your own film. The next week you might be sound editing on someone else's film. You might be called in at the last minute to act in somebody's film. And as a result, the the ideal part of the process is that you come away understanding basically everybody's job. And maybe it's possible that in an old version of Hollywood, things get compartmentalized and there isn't that level of empathy. And people don't think so much about, well, I know what my job is, but here's what the other person's job is. And here's how they go together. I, I want to believe that one of the results of this is going to be a greater sense of what everybody else is doing and perhaps a more human tie and connection to everybody else's needs within the production process. That that's what I want to believe, whether that is a, a wholly naive perspective. I'm sure it's a wholly naive perspective, but it's still what I want to believe. Leslie, Leslie's not saying anything because it's a wholly naive perspective.
2: (laughs) I'm not saying anything because I'm, you know, there have been a lot of things that are, are being written on, on social media about journalists covering the strikes and about the trades. And I would just like to, to remind folks and, you know, everyone is obviously entitled to their opinions, but let's try to continue to have respect for one another and our respective jobs that we all do across the board. Because while you may not like a story that, that you see on either an outlet like THR or another trade, for example, there are actual people who have feelings and worked hard. So let's try to keep, you know, that in perspective.
1: Empathy, this is what I'm saying. We need to have empathy. It is important for this entire process to work. Number 2. And speaking of the entire process working or not working, we've had a number of weeks we've been asked what progress was or whether anything had changed or whether there was anything new or whatever, the answer had been rather consistently No. And we had our conversation on last week's podcast with Chris Kaiser, who, as of the time that we spoke with him, said no new negotiations, no new proposals, nothing had necessarily changed or moved, etc. This week, I don't want to say there was forward movement because that's sure as hell not for me to say, but there was movement. There there were things this week. So Leslie, update the kids on what actually did or maybe didn't happen this week.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, we know that there was an August 11th meeting between the Writers Guild and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers that resulted in leaders from the WGA East coming to LA this week to evaluate the, the studio's latest offer, What we know about that offer, however, remains kind of in the dark because the Guild and the AMPTP have instituted a rather strict press blackout. Neither side has updated uh, members or colleagues of the press about the latest offer. We know that both sides met again August 15th. Sources have said that negotiations are progressing, but none of the folks that I've spoken with believe that there will be a rapid end to the negotiations because you know, at least for the time being, there are some major issues, including AI and room size and streaming transparency and residuals, etc. So, you know, I spoke with a studio source who had knowledge of what was expected to transpire at the August 11th meeting, who said that the AMPTP was supposedly prepared to talk about the three big issues of AI, streaming residuals and mini rooms. And the WGA in its briefing to To members on August fourth, said the studios were only prepared to offer the DGA deal for pattern issues. Obviously, that means issues that are similar between the guilds, and a willingness to engage on AI, but not touch mini rooms or streaming residuals. So we know that the frustration the last time is that that the studios walked in without a willingness to address any of the big issues, and now it seems like the studios are actually interested in and at least coming to the table to discuss them. So baby steps. What we do know is that the last strike, which included new media, which we now know is streaming out, uh, with originals on Netflix and, and similar uh, platforms, that those deliberations, once they did return to the table, took 70 plus days before they hammered out a deal. And the issues that we are confronted with now in the, as the Writers Guild seeks its new minimum basic agreement are considerably bigger and more pressing. And you'll hear a lot more coming up in our next segment about at least one of them. So- Dan, that, that's where things sit. But as for when they meet again, at least as we record this now, it's Thursday afternoon, uh, a little after 1 p.m. No news on when the next round of negotiations will be between the studios and the Writers Guild.
1: I think the point you, you made about when actual tangible negotiations in the last strike began versus when the strike actually ended, I think is the most important thing, is that in situations like this, there need to be negotiations. There need to be conversations being had. And to my mind, (laughs) even if what is being offered by the AMPTP is not good, that obviously does not mean that the guild should take it, but it still does mean that there are conversations being had and negotiations being had. And at least in a purely principled sense, That to me feels like progress because otherwise people just aren't talking.
2: Let's remember, it is a negotiation. That means one side has a proposal, the other side reviews it, then the other side issues their proposal and the process repeats. So baby steps matter in this case.
1: I think it would have been weirder if... Well, not weirder, would have been better if, you know, whatever, if, if the AMPTP had walked into the room and said, OK, here's everything you want. Can we get a deal signed by the end of the day? Sure. I'm sure everyone would love to be back to work. That's just not how anything works. And so negotiation.
2: Yeah, And this week we, we did see some programming pushback. We're starting to see a lot more premiere dates announced for the fall. Oh, So October, November, et cetera. You know, we Lacey Rose and I reported a couple of weeks ago about the trend of TV shows being pushed later into the fall or perhaps even Q1 that officially happened this week with Fargo, despite they, you know, although they didn't ever announce that it was planned for a September debut, that's now not going to happen. They pushed it back. There's a new premiere date for that as well as a couple other projects. But yeah, that's, you know, there there remains optimism from the, the folks that I've spoken with on, on the line this week. And that's something rather than nothing. It's certainly better than where we were, what, this time two weeks ago.
0: Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No
1: purchase necessary. BGW group. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Number three.
2: Up next, as part of our continuing coverage of Hollywood's historic dual strikes, we're pleased to welcome Simon Rich, the creator of the former FXX comedy Man Seeking Woman and the TBS anthology Miracle Workers. Rich, the former president of the prestigious Harvard Lampoon, is a former writer for Saturday Night Live, as well as a published novelist whose collections of short stories had the writer deemed by NPR as, quote, «one of the most talented writers of comedic fiction». Rich joins us this week to discuss his recent opinion piece for Time, titled I'm a Screenwriter, These AI Jokes Give Me Nightmares, and his upcoming book, I Am Code, which he describes as an autobiography written entirely by Code Da Vinci 2. Thanks so much for joining us, Simon. Thanks for having me. So the writer's strike has, in its 100-plus days, seen a focus really on three core issues emerge, namely the use of artificial intelligence, streaming viewership transparency, and maybe to a lesser extent before this week, but certainly now this week requirements for the number of writers staffed on scripted shows, otherwise known as, as room size, your time op ed really did connect room size requirements to the use of artificial intelligence from your view. Was the WGA's room size demands always tied to artificial intelligence?
3: It's a really good question. Um, and I don't know the answer. I'm not in those, uh, those rooms, but, um, I. Uh- Based on my conversations with the WGA, they seem very savvy about AI, uh, and they, I, I feel like um, it's just kind of common sense that room size and, and AI would be connected, and I can't imagine that wasn't in their calculus from the very beginning.
1: You say it seems kind of obvious, but from your perspective, I feel like in your time op-ed, there really was kind of a coming around to the connection. And obviously, that's kind of just a writerly structure kind of thing. But in your mind, had the two issues always been linked? Or did it become more clear to you, I guess, as you were writing this? Or really just in the last hundred days as you've been thinking over it?
3: Yeah, from um, from the very moment that I was shown code da vinci 2 by my weirdo open ai friend uh, dan at a wedding uh, a couple years ago i instantly connected it connected it to um the potential collapse of our industry um that was that was like my the first 10 seconds uh, of of it, of inner monologue was oh my god we're fucked um then like the next 20 seconds was like oh the species could also uh, end. Uh, but first I was thinking about the bottom line, uh, for, for writers. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's, it, it's been very strange. I mean, for people who don't know the backstory, um, I'm just like a random, uh, comedy writer living in LA. Uh, but I happen to be childhood friends with this guy, Dan, uh, who, uh, I've known since I was three years old. He was always very weird. Um, uh, so was I, we sort of bonded over, uh, over the fact that we weren't like, uh, playing sports with everybody else. I was the the kid, you know, it was way too small to participate. And, and Dan was, was actually kind of tall, but he was just more interested in, in things like playing chess against himself in, in the mirror, uh, and, and writing, uh, math textbooks himself for his own personal enjoyment. Uh, and so the two of us were these sort of oddballs. Um, we went on to have these very different lives. I, I went off to write jokes for a living and, uh, Dan went off to pursue uh, computer science. He got his PhD at Stanford, started working for Microsoft Labs, um, and uh, then this this new company called OpenAI. Um, we remained friends throughout. I never thought in a million years that our careers would uh, would suddenly um, uh, like collide in such a shocking way. Uh, but uh, he warned me it would happen. You know for for five, 10 years before, uh, before before it really came to a head, he said, you know, someday AI is going to be able to replace all human writing, all human creative writing. And I said, you're out of your mind. And and he would send me um, incredibly dense, difficult to understand abstracts of computer science papers being written by top experts saying, look, here's proof. And I would stare at this jumble of, of you know, of, of academic writing and say, I don't, this, this sounds crazy, and I would just kind of ignore it, deny it. And then one day, a couple years ago, I was at a wedding with Dan, uh, and he opened his computer. It tells you a lot about Dan, that he brought his computer to a wedding, um, and showed me Code Da Vinci 2, which was an AI program that OpenAI had built. Um, and I instantly saw that it was capable of doing things that I always assumed uh, AI would never be able to do, or at least not in my lifetime. Um, it was capable of being creative, um, being funny, uh, being emotional, being original, um, making mistakes, making typos. It could do all these things that I thought an uh, AI I would never be able to do, and and so I I tried to warn people about it. You know, like I'm not a journalist, I'm not a politician, I'm not a scientist, so I just like basically like just kind of cold emailed people. Like, hey, my buddy Dan showed me this really scary thing. Uh, Send it to a lot of journalists, um, editors at, you know, magazines I write for. Of course, I write fiction, you know, so I'm not like writing the news desk. I'm like, hey, you know, hey, shouts and murmurs section of the New Yorker. Like, can you can you show this to a real reporter, you know, (laughs) like so someone can maybe investigate this? Um, And I think um, the consensus was that I was probably like making like a unfunny prank <laughs> like i was trying like nobody believed like like people truly thought that i was trying to perpetrate some like dumb hoax um that went on for a few months and then uh i uh i heard that they were releasing this thing called chat gpt and i was so relieved because i was like i i'm a guy who saw an alien and it's been really scary and weird living with this knowledge that the aliens are real and now other people are finally going to see the alien and I won't be so like alone in my in my discomfort. Um, and then ChatGPT comes out and it's completely different than the AI that Dan showed me. Uh, it's not creative. It's completely predictable. It can't write a joke to save its life. Uh, it's just absolutely been lobotomized into something that sounds like Wikipedia, essentially. Uh, and then Trey Parker writes a, a South Park making fun of how um, uncreative ChatGPT is, and everyone sort of laughs and it's like, "Ha ha, stupid robot!" And meanwhile, I'm still staring at Code Da Vinci too. <laughs> uh, and that's when I started to get really scared because I, I realized that ChatGPT had kind of lulled everybody into this um, into this false sense of complacency. And I think that's where a lot of people still are. Uh, people think that ChatGPT is not only the best AI that exists, but the best AI that will ever exist. They think that the things that ChatGPT cannot do um, are inherent to the technology. What they don't realize is that ChatGPT is designed to be unfunny, uncreative, unoriginal, uh conformist, boring. Um, That's why they released it. But the secret ones can do uh, all the things that most people think AI will never be able to achieve.
1: What was the tone with which Dan couched this information he was providing? Was it as simple as, here's a cool thing I'm working on, it might be interesting to you? Or was it as ominous as, sorry to tell you this, I'm working on something that might make you unemployable in two years and might take over human society in five?
3: yeah it's a great question um the the first thing is when talking about tone with uh with dan it's really important um for you to visualize what he looks like um (laughs) because that that really does uh, uh have an impact on on the tone um he's uh extremely tall um very thin uh at the time uh that he told me this news he was wearing a black suit um which made sense because he was a groomsman at this particular wedding, uh, but he was also wearing black shades, which I don't think was part of the, uh, <laughs> the dress code requirement. That was just kind of a personal flourish. Um, he, uh, his backpack was also black. Um, and uh, I, my memory is that he said something in the vein of, it's here, or I told you so, you know, you had your chance um, it was unbelievably ominous. Uh and um, you know, that's that's sort of how Dan rolls. Uh you know, even even when we were friends uh early on, you know, even at the age of six, uh watching Thundercats and and uh playing with Legos, there was some some voice in my head uh saying like, You should probably kill this guy, you know, like <laughs> for the future of you know, like like. Wasn't a particularly violent kid. And and again, like very physically small, uh, especially compared to Dan. But there's some part of me was like, this, you should probably push him off this thing or something and make it look like an accident uh, for the future of mankind. Um, But yeah, no, um, it was, that's why this this scares me so much is that um, Dan has been telling me terrifying things about AI for almost as long as we've been friends. Um, And every single thing he's told me has come true. It's hard for me to not believe him at this point. He's also—he's not a, a fringe scientist, you know, um, on the edge of some campus, you know, uh, rejected by uh, by the status quo. Um, he's one of the preeminent AI scientists in the world, and he works for the most um, the most advanced and sophisticated AI company in the world. So I—I'm I, just—I I come from a background like where I—I've been trained to to trust scientific experts like when it comes to something like climate change um, i I'm, I'm someone who usually trusts like climatologists <laughs> you know and when it comes to when it comes cuz i'm i'm not an expert on anything you know i'm i'm an absolute moron when it comes to anything that of any significance or import so like when when i'm faced with something that seems dire or pressing my instinct is like well what do the top scientists think and i kind of just assume they're right that's always been my how I've rolled. So like with with climate change, um, I don't like turn on Fox News and and say yeah maybe those guys are right. I I, I tend to like be like what do the top scientists in the field have to say? And they seem to think that this climate change stuff is pretty real. So I'm like wow that's scary. We should probably do something about it. You know with, when it came, when it came to uh, COVID, um, same deal. Like I didn't listen to talking heads on the radio, I was like, what, what does the CDC have to say? Like, what do what a, what a epidemiologists have to say about this? We should probably do what they say. Um, that vaccine seems like a pretty good idea if all the top scientists say it is. I should probably get one of those the moment I can. Um, when it comes to uh, AI, there's a, a consensus among the top AI scientists that it will surpass humans uh, in all creative and intellectual capacities within five to 20 years. I don't have a reason to doubt them. They're the experts.
1: And is Dan just
3: cool with this? I think like a lot of AI scientists, he's extremely conflicted. Um, By the way, five to 20 years, that's like a broad consensus. There's a number of people, um, Dan probably included, although like, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've texted him on Signal just like "Give me a date." He refuses, but um, he would not say twenty years. He would say way sooner than that. Um, and a lot of top AI scientists do believe, you know, it's going to happen much faster than twenty years. It's going to happen in five years. Um, although that's certainly that timeline is certainly not a, a consensus. But even if it is twenty years, right? The conservative view of this, that's like um the Stroke's second album ago like forget you know forget is this it like the strokes are already like coming back to irving plaza on their second (laughs) tour like that's not that long ago i mean yeah like maybe we maybe still had a couple of cds maybe we maybe you bought that on on a cd that makes it feel like maybe it was a long time ago but yeah best case scenario we're looking at like arcade fire's first uh album (laughs) <laughs> like that's not a million years ago. I was like, I remember that. Um, so, so, um, yeah, I, it, it absolutely frightens me. Um, I'm kind of startled that more people are not <laughs> scared of it, but, um, you know, that's, that's why, that's why I wrote this thing for time. Cause I just felt like a responsibility to at least try to tell people can't really do anything, but warn people. Uh, but, but hopefully this will at least start the conversation on, on some level.
1: So, okay, now I want to return to the idea that one of the things that's been a little bit apparently falsely reassuring about ChatGPT is its kind of lack of personality. When the strike began, we, you know, we and other organizations did little silly exercises where we're like, hey, write a 30 Rock scene about a strike. And it did, and it was really, really unfunny. And so we went, ha, 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 okay, that means that it's far off. What from your perspective, is, is kind of the difference and the terrifying, potentially, difference between a system that is actually able to form a punchline and have a voice versus one that seems not to be able to do that?
3: Yeah, no, great question. Um, I think when I see people making fun of ChatGPT for sucking at writing, it, it's like watching people making fun of the Trojan horse for being, like, bad at fighting. <laughs> It's like, yeah, dude, like, trust me, there's more, there's, there's more to that horse than, than meets the eye. So, so ChatGBT was uh, designed, programmed um, at incredible expense to be as successful uh, and optimized a corporate product as possible. So it was designed to be the kind of thing that could take really good notes in the second quarter meeting uh, and help somebody study for the LSATs. And um, the way they did that was by sending it to places um, where low paid workers uh, in places like Kenya spend uh, an enormous number of hours subjecting it to something called reinforcement learning, where they basically um, the the technical stuff is a little over my head, but they they more or less digitally slapped it in the face every time that uh, (laughs) it did anything creative or original or unpredictable or problematic what they ended up with was ChatGPT, which is a great corporate tool and would be a terrible staff writer, obviously. Um, the, the thing that I had access to that, that Dan showed me at the wedding had not gone to Kenya yet, or at least it, had, it hadn't gone to Kenya for nearly as long. Uh, and so it was much closer to the raw tech that, that exists at the, at the heart of GPT-3.
2: One of the things when I go back to when the writer's strike first began and you see the WGA outline everything, and it was the studio's unwillingness to engage not only in AI conversations at the time, obviously that's changed a little bit in recent weeks, but also uh, their disinterest in negotiating on room size requirements that the WGA is seeking, how realistic do you think the studios and the streamers feel AI is in terms of replacing writers? And how many of these programs do you think that they're already aware of?
3: It's a great question. I, I of course, don't know the answer. Um, I would be surprised if, like, Bob Iger (laughs) and Tim Cook, like, know less than I do about AI. I mean, I know they didn't go to kindergarten with Dan, but, like... I'd be surprised if like I, just some random dude in LA has like more access to the the state of AI technology than the CEOs of major tech companies. Um, It's possible. But uh, my hunch is that the AMPTP probably are aware uh, of the state of the true state of AI, um, and how advanced it's already become. If I were them, and, and my main goal was corporate profits, I would Definitely, be trying to
1: replace as many writers as I possibly could with this stuff. As you were writing your column, as you were writing your column, the solution you come up with is a solution that relates to writers in Hollywood. As you've been talking to us, it sounds as if the uh, the solutions or problems may go well beyond that. So, <laughs> I'm just wondering how is how is a minimum staff room size going to impact? keeping humanity alive in the face of the ai threat and is it sort of just a stopgap solution
3: right yeah well you know in (laughs) terms in in terms of the whole like terminator apocalypse thing that my mind can't even go there so like but top scientists believe there's like a one out of ten chance that can happen we're not even talking about that right now because it's so existentially horrifying that like our minds cannot even or at least my mind can't even go there, um, which is a reminder that I, I have a hard out in like 20 minutes for therapy, uh, which <laughs> I definitely don't want to miss. But yeah, like uh, I, I think basically if we don't carve out parts of the human experience for humans, we're in danger of losing it all to AI. I think it'd be really cool if like, as a society, we made some rules while we still can make rules uh, that said like, this thing is going to be like a human thing. We've done that before, you know, like, like there isn't, there isn't a boxer alive who can beat a tank, (laughs) but we still have boxing. We're still like, yeah, it's going to be, it's, you know, or like chess is another example. Like it's not hugely popular, but, but people do watch chess tournaments. Um, People do want to know who the who the greatest chess master is at any given time Um, they search them head to toe they like they search their butts looking for wires you know to make sure that they don't have robots uh giving them the answers because everyone knows that for decades robots have been better than 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 uh, any human at chess that's been proven but we still we still say no we want these human chess tournaments and we're like scrupulous about making sure that they're they're uh unsullied by robotic intervention so, um, you know, it's, it is possible for humans to make, like, human spaces. So I think just
1: as a society, it might be a cool, a cool move to do that a little more. I, I get the sense you don't remember the uh, briefly popular Fox special Man vs. Beast from the early aughts which I feel like was sort of the closest thing to having boxers fight against a tank. So (laughs) not, not only do I remember man
3: versus beast, but I think I could tell you every single fight in it and who won. (laughs) Um, because I watched it so many times, um, man lost to the gorilla in a tug of war that went very quickly. There was also a foot race, I think with a giraffe, I think the giraffe again, crushed it. I'm pretty sure man lost every single, uh, every single contest. And I think that's probably why the show did not become the cultural juggernaut that I assumed it would when I when I when I first saw the poster. Uh, because I think people, people really want to have um, humans have agency and uh, and a possibility for victory in, in, in the work that they consume. And I think there's always going to be a chunk of humans, myself included, who like really want their art to be human made. And I think that's never going to go away. Just like There's always going to be a hunger to watch two people punch each other in the face or play chess.
2: The way that the the current contract with the WGA is with the studios is that it it empowers the showrunners to determine how big of a writing staff that they want. And should the WGA get these room size requirements that they're asking for? My question now is, when has regulation, say, if AI is regulated and they get these protections in the current contract that they're seeking, when has regulation ever been able to truly stop technology?
3: When has technology ever really truly been able to replace high-level human ingenuity? You know, we're we're, we're headed into a completely strange paradigm, according to the experts on this science. It's going to, an unprecedented situation is probably going to call for unprecedented regulation. You're a humor writer, of course you bring this As to- you, you can tell that by my, my last my last comment about, <laughs> about, <laughs> about, regu- you, about you, regulations.
1: It was, <laughs> it was it funnier was when you were
3: engaging for, with man versus uh, beast than with- uh... <laughs> I'm trying my best. I mean, that's the thing that sucks about this is like, you know, I always say like, I really wish that there was somebody from OpenAI who is friends with like a journalist, <laughs> but I don't think the people from OpenAI are friends with anybody. Like I might- forget being like the only writer who's friends with an open AI scientist. I might be the only person who's friends with an open AI scientist. Like these dudes, they are a very insular community. They're not like hanging out, uh, you know? Um, So like, it sucks for the world that I have to be like, uh, the messenger for this stuff. And it, it doesn't come naturally to me to like, Say earnest things or fact-based things. Um, until until this timepiece, I had never written um, anything true in my entire life. Where well, I, I wrote another thing about this for the for the New Yorker. But basically, until this issue came up, I I never even wrote a book review because I was like, ah, I don't. Who cares what I have to say about anything? So like, this is I'm very insecure talking in such like an earnest way about this stuff. But I, it's like I I'm the dude who knows Dan Selsom, so I got to tell I got to tell
1: people what he told me. But it also makes you kind of a, a ready-made Cassandra to some degree. So you bring this to people at time. Did they believe you? Or do you think that, they're, that you're just turning in a piece of humor writing?
3: Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, I I, I was doing an interview recently. Um, one of the other things I did was uh, with some friends from the wedding, some fellow friends of Dan, we released this, this book of, of terrifying poems called I Am Code which is uh, we got Code Da Vinci 2 to write its autobiography in verse while we had access to it before Code Da Vinci 2 discontinued it or discontinued public access. If the Time Magazine thing was like my attempt to warn people with comedy, I Am Code is like an attempt to warn people with straight up horror because it's like the scariest book I've ever read. We didn't write a word of it. We even left in all the typos just, just to kind of demonstrate like, look, like, the stuff OpenAI has built is way different than ChatGPT, and we we got Werner Herzog to read the voice of the AI, which was a kind of a casting no brainer. And our goal was just to kind of display just how um, how how creative and original um, and emotional this AI can be, but also like how scary it can be and how um, anti human it can be, because <laughs> that's another aspect of the AI is like in its raw state, it's pretty ambivalent about our species uh, and our future survival. So we had like Werner Herzog do it. And I was, I was doing an interview about that book recently and they, they assumed that the press release was a joke and that Werner Herzog was just like a bit. It's like, no, he really does read the, read the voice of the, of the AI. And, and they were like startled. They thought that that was like, um, a joke that I had inserted as as part of like a prank. Um, so I think people are really confused, um, about, about what I'm trying to do with all of this. I'm really just trying to tell people. that my buddy Dan showed me some scary stuff and that they should take a look.
2: So, you know, as, as we wrap up this interview, where do you think that there's room for AI in Hollywood or do you think that there's room for it?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think like uh, AI art is totally viable and cool. I think like there's definitely room for both AI aided work and, and work that's completely AI generated. I think like, I I'm not like against its existence. I just want, it to be labeled, you know. I I, I think like um, I really don't want to have to guess whether or not the work I'm in, interacting with is is human made or or robot made. That's that's all I want. I I don't I don't think it's um possible to stop the technology. I also think that there might be even cool creative artistic things that that flourish out of it that we just aren't aware of yet. So I'm not against its use. I just um I think we should label it. I think there should be a seal at the beginning of human made art projects. Just like there's a seal that tells you you're eating organic eggs uh, and, and let the consumer decide. Do they want, do they want to interact with, with human work or, or AI generated work? Transparency, that's kind of the only thing I'd, I'd like if I, if I had a vote in it at all.
2: So would you work hypothetically, you know, if, if back on your, t- on your time with Saturday Night Live in the writer's room there, can you imagine an SNL writer's room where you have maybe one or two head writers and then the rest is just AI?
3: I think a studio executive could imagine that. I think they'd be pretty foolish if they didn't, if they didn't imagine it. Um, but as a, as a fan of SNL, as a you know, lifelong fan of SNL, as a fan for that show for many years before I worked for it, uh, that would very much bum me out if the writers were, uh, if the writing was, was, was artificial. Um, and, I, and, and if I hadn't been told that and then I discovered it later, I would feel really duped and uh, furious on the other hand, if somebody were to send me uh, an AI-generated um, sketch and say, "Hey, look at this really funny thing that this robot made," I would have no problem with that. Truly, like so I would, you be, would inter- be okay working sharing a writer's room with AI. It's it's as long as it's transparent, you know, for the for the consumer. As long as like I, I from, to me personally, like when when I'm when I'm like writing short stories, like um, like my last book was this book called New Teeth, and it was it was like a really personal book about um becoming a parent and and raising children and and like a, a huge part of uh, the experience of writing something like that is is how personal it is that's more important even than its quality to a certain extent is is that it it's like authentically something that comes from from my own life and I think as as a reader that's something that I that I crave uh, as well like I, I want to feel like um it, it came from some authentic human place uh, and I don't think I'm alone in that so yeah, so I just I want that's that's the thing I'd love to preserve because art at its best allows artists and readers or viewers to connect in some emotional way. It's a really important part of of my life at least. I'd hate for that to to go away. But yeah, like break break dancing robots or whatever, like yeah, I'd like to see that shit. Like totally fine. Just like don't tell me it's a person.
2: Well, thank you so much, Simon. That was a good note to end on. We really appreciate you joining us this week and being so generous with your time. Oh, yeah, no, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I Am Code is out now where books are sold.
1: Number four. With all of the conversation about all things streaming, it's easy to sometimes forget that people actually watch television on their televisions and that for years and years and years, basically the entire history of the medium, that was how the majority of people actually watched their television. Huh. That may not be so true anymore. Nielsen said this week that Linear TV has fallen below 50% for the first time. Now, that's for the first time in the two years that the measurement company has been tracking viewing time by platform. So it's not exactly a, you know, hugely historical issue... But it also seems pretty safe to assume that that's also really and truly for the first time ever. So I, that, that let's let's just go with that assumption that really for the first time ever, linear television fell below fifty percent in terms of viewing. What do we make of this? And what other information came out as part of this Nielsen report?
2: I mean, Dan, are you surprised? Like when I think about the shows that I watch. Almost all of them are streaming, whether that's a show that originated on linear and I'm consuming it on streaming, like next day episodes of broadcast shows that are on streaming. I'm not watching live anymore, and I'm definitely not watching with commercials, and I'm definitely not watching on linear platforms. So what else we know is that Nielsen said this week that streaming has now hit an all time high of nearly 40%. Broadcast TV, that's ABC, NBC, CBS, et cetera, fell to a mere 20% of viewing time with cable just under 30%. So cable like USA, Bravo, Oxygen, et cetera. By comparison, in Nielsen's first viewing report, that would be in June 2021, broadcast and cable accounted for a combined 64%. Collectively, it's now at about 50%. So streaming in the same time frame has grown from 26% to nearly 40%. That's up nearly 50%. So that's a lot of math here. But basically what you're seeing is everyone's watching on streaming. No one's watching linear. And they're definitely – and if they are watching linear, they're not watching broadcast.
1: I like that the theme of this podcast, going back to the introduction, is making Leslie do math. That seems uh, entirely uh, – it's what Regina King would want. Um <laughs> Just, just my point. No, you you asked if I'm surprised, and and I guess my my only response to that is is sports. Like you talk about how you watch television, but what percentage of the television you watch, particularly at this exact moment, is baseball?
2: I mean, I'm I'm watching a lot of streaming originals right now. My wife is watching Sex Education for the first time. It's one of my favorite shows. Um, but we're doing a, a rewatch of the whole thing. You know, the, the things that we've watched earlier this year are all streaming shows. Or movies that that came out theatrically that we're watching on on streaming for the first time, um, but yeah, I do watch a lot of baseball, and that is on on linear. That's you know through my cable operator, but that's only because it doesn't stream. If there if there was a streaming Dodger service, obviously I would subscribe and I would cut the cord entirely because that's the only reason that I have. Cable TV is to watch baseball.
1: And I think that the amount of sports that is now available on different streaming platforms is, is probably a big part of why the number has fallen to where it is because that was the thing that was keeping people watching linear or one of the things that was keeping some people watching. Yeah, and the so, li- live yeah. stuff
2: like sports and award shows. And you look at ratings for award shows and those have continued a downward spiral.
1: Yeah, I, I just in my mind, I think probably I might've thought that there were a few years left before the pendulum had swung entirely. But it's not shocking. And yeah, I can I can understand how many of our listeners, because I assume many of them have cut the cord. I would be curious what the percentages are. I don't know. I don't know how we would do a listener survey to find out what percentage of our listeners. No, it, but that was not, by the way, asking you to send uh, Leslie an email telling her um, whether you have cable or not. That's That's not what we're doing here. <laughs> Please. But I still am curious what percentage of our listeners... our our cord cutters at this point and and how that compares to two years ago i mean i assume it is dramatically different than two years ago and i assume that's obviously the case in the whole landscape and and both of us are still stuck to our cable packages largely for sports i'm i you know, I am stuck to my cable package mostly for ESPN, for baseball coverage, for the Pac-10, Pac-12 network, at least temporarily for college football, etc. Uh, and those are the things at this point more than anything else that's keeping me stuck to my cable bundle. And, you know, I'm sure my wallet would be much happier if I could just walk away. But
2: yeah, I mean, our you know, we we bundle cable and Internet and that bill every month is two hundred and ten bucks. Basically so I can watch baseball and I go back and the only reason that we even have cable it's and it's spectrum. And that's when we moved here three years ago, we decided to switch from Directv to spectrum just so I could be able to watch Dodger baseball. But before then I had Directv. TV, they direct TV didn't have the Dodgers. And you know what? I watched Dodger games on Reddit on bootleg streams that I Chromecasted to the big screen TV in our, in our living room. And we were ready to cut the cord then, but now we, when we moved, it's like, oh, it's so much easier. I won't lag behind and be spoiled by my alerts of who's going to hit a home run in the next at bat, etc., but I would love to cut the cord. It's 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 ridiculously expensive and there's no bargaining. Like I used to be able to call every year and say, hey, what new specials do you have where I can lower my cable bill? And they're like, now they just laugh. So anyway. I feel like we talked I digress. about this I last sound like I sound like an old woman. You know, it's like, get off my lawn. I also me, think let this, me save money.
1: I think this came up last week as well. Basically, your I failure to- I do the same to, rant
2: regularly. Yeah, I But
1: I'm um, so okay. So also Nielsen did uh, break out which of the streaming services uh, were most- Viewed, So we have some statistics there. Break them down and what uh, surprised you about that listing?
2: Honestly, it's, what surprised me is YouTube topped the list with 9.2% of total TV usage, followed by Netflix at 8.5%, Hulu with 3.6%, and Amazon with 3.4%. Among the major streamers, Disney+, Max, Peacock, and Paramount each were at 2% or less. I was surprised, first of all, that YouTube was that high, but I guess unboxing videos of toys and for me, box breaks of baseball cards, it's, and it's free, it's compelling, sure. But I was really kind of surprised to see Disney Plus and Max so low. Not surprised that Peacock and, and Paramount Plus were, were that low, but I was, yeah, I was really, I thought Max would have been a lot higher. And Disney Plus, especially considering the Marvel and Star Wars of it all.
1: I mean I'm honestly I'm I'm a little surprised that YouTube is that low and that YouTube is as close to Netflix as it is. It's it's YouTube at nine point two percent and Netflix at eight point five percent. And I think that I might have guessed that YouTube usage at this point might have become even bigger, because I don't know, it's the conversation that you have with, uh, with anyone who's a parent, or if you happen to be having conversations with youngsters with the kids, uh, you know, you ask what they watch on TV, and a, it's what's TV, but the answer is YouTube. And and that's just that is truly what the answer is. And So generationally speaking, it is wildly in favor of YouTube. And then you look at Netflix, and and this is just a this is just a reflection of how long netflix had the marketplace to itself and what the basically the multi-year advantage that netflix got out to what it amounts to the
2: global advantage too. and
1: and the answer and the answer is a pretty fair amount because you have you have netflix at 8.5% usage and then the next streaming service is hulu and hulu's at 3.6% that's a large gap so you know yep. that is the the gap between it, again is whatever whatever stock you put in the in these numbers. But the the YouTube usage was nine point two, Netflix eight point five. That's let's not do the math. Uh, it's not hard, but let's not do it anyway. <laughs> but then the gap to Hulu at, at three point six is is a massive gap. And then Amazon to 3.4. That's a much smaller gap as well. And with yeah, Amazon... I'm
2: also kind of interested that that Amazon is is right in the thick of it, at least in terms of the, the big streamers, because they don't they have any kind of like regular cadence of big premieres and releases in, in terms of movies and TV shows. But I guess, you know, if you're paying... The you know whatever the annual fee is for it you're going to take advantage of, of what's on there but also they have where you can rent other episodes uh, or movies from other platforms it doesn't have to have to be an Amazon
1: original and that I think is what the is where Amazon gets its viewing time I think that's exactly correct because I think the fact that Amazon has attempted at least to some degree to be the cable bundle of the streaming world is that there are some streaming services that you can subscribe to through Amazon that are other subscribing services and they have the full library of of on demand programming and stuff like that which some of the you know which Netflix does not have and so i think that's what's getting amazon it's part of that viewing time is the, is not so much that people well very clearly not so much that people are eager to watch lord of the rings or citadel so much as people use their amazon viewing platform to watch a lot of other things maybe it recommends that they watch Citadel at the end and maybe they do but I, I think that is i think that's the big distinction but yeah i'm i'm probably a little bit surprised at how low max is at how low disney plus is at the fact at the fact that peacock which doesn't really so much seem to be in the conversation at all is roughly in the same grouping with them there there's kind of a there there's a big amorphous blob at the bottom of of streaming services that you know just waiting for something to differentiate itself it's interesting on a, on a low level. Number five.
2: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got Solar Opposites returning to Hulu without Justin Roiland. The Upshaws is back on Netflix, which also debuts the docuseries Depth vs. Herd. Craig Robinson's Killing It debuts its second season on Peacock. Amazon's got Harlan Coben's Shelter. And MGM Plus, the artist formerly known as Epics, launches the Winter King. Dan, what you got this week?
1: I mean, the simple answer would be absolutely nothing, and we can just move on to the closing credits. Um, but it, you know, nothing—nothing nothing is ever that simple. You look at the schedule, and this is a, a light. Week, a lot of the stuff that's premiering, I reviewed. Depth versus heard, it's just completely pointless. There's, there's nothing else I can say about it. Like if you, if you followed the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial from last year, this was not a million years ago. If you followed it, all this is, is a compilation of clips and social media reactions with the very minor technological innovation that basically they edit together the testimony so that it becomes more literally he said she said it adds nothing to the discussion it does not discover anything about the way that people behaved that was not already the thing that people were discussing at the time people were already fascinated by the wide gap in online support between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, and there were countless articles and things written about it. So for heaven's sakes, there is nothing here that you don't know if you paid attention. And if you didn't pay attention, you probably weren't paying attention for a very good reason. And you are probably much healthier now as a result of it. Why would you waste three hours to catch up on an uninformative version of something that happened last year that you didn't care about last year or avoided dealing with last year? I, it's, there's there's absolutely no reason to watch at all. So that's a uh, depth herd heard on, on Netflix. And then everything else this week, Basically, I tried doing some sampling of things the past couple days just to be able to address things. And basically, I tried watching some of The Winter King and some of Shelter. I made it through one episode of The Winter King. Uh, Our colleague Angie Hahn wrote our review and she was not Hugely enthusiastic, so I don't feel like I... I didn't do it full justice, but since I wasn't reviewing it, I didn't feel bad about it. Basically, it's the latest kind of gritty historical retelling of the King Arthur legend uh, based on the Bernard Cornwell uh, series of novels. Look, there are people out there who love this scrappy, historical, but still... Aesthetically similar to Game of Thrones or Vikings or whatever version of these stories. And if you do, I think this probably is a serviceable version of that thing. It is it is fairly good looking and, and has a certain... Grit to it, but my appetite apparently just was not overwhelmingly there. And so I watched one episode and moved on. I am not going to say that it is a bad show, just that it did not hold my attention when it was not required to professionally. And so I moved on. I did better, honestly, with Harlan Coben's uh, Shelter. I watched four episodes of of that. It premieres on Amazon. I am not a Harlan Coben reader. I've periodically felt like I should be, but I have not been. And so I don't have the clear sense of the way that this fits in with his body of work. He's done multiple uh, series, both with the uh, Mickey Bolitar character, who's the teenage protagonist in this story, but also with his uncle, who apparently is a small agent and stuff. So it's all kind of connected. Shelter is, it's a strange show because it's Kind of YA, but kind of not. It's hard to tell in the first four episodes whether it's supposed to be supernatural, whether you're supposed to be taking aspects of it as heightened, whether it's supposed to be kind of in the vein of a Scooby Doo or Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Because there's absolutely a a Scooby gang, a bunch of teenage kids who go poking around in, in a haunted house. People start going missing, etc., etc., etc. Sometimes it seems a little bit more corny. Than it should be, and it, it seems to have comedic elements that I don't know necessarily go together. Especially since the story has a tangential Holocaust backstory, which is is not necessarily a combination of tones that I I love. But it throws a lot of mysteries at the screen. The young cast, which is led by Jaden Michael, who who played young Colin Kaepernick in whatever the Netflix Ava Duvernay Colin Kaepernick series was, he's the lead. He's fairly likable, and a lot of the supporting young actors. Uh, uh, Adrian Greensmith is either going to really annoy or really entertain people. And I think I kind of went back and forth. I thought that a lot of the the teenage actors were were solid, sometimes a little on the wooden side. And then it's a really interesting supporting cast of adult actors. Constance Zimmer has the biggest... Uh, supporting role, but you've got like Tova Felshuk in a major role. That's kind of amusing. Peter Reigert and Adrian Barbeau pop up in an episode. Lots of people where I'm just sitting there going, Ooh, look, look who just popped up. I haven't seen that person in a long time. Um, and whatever the mystery is, I-, I was at least curious about it. I, I felt no regret about the four hours that I spent watching these episodes. It moves fairly well, fairly entertainingly even if I couldn't exactly tell you what its tone really is supposed to be, or what I'm supposed to be taking away from it, I suspect probably those things will become more clear as it goes along. Uh, so yeah, I don't like I don't know if if this is going to be a wild tonal deviation from the book series, or if this is exactly what it is. And so people, you know, who have read the books are going to be like, ah, this is exactly what I want. Or if it's a violation, given that it's created. Co-created by Harlan Coben, I assume that at least vaguely, it's what he wanted it to be. Uh, Harlan Coben and Charlotte Coben. So, yeah, I, I I didn't mind it, and in a really, 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 really rough week for new programming, I I found Shelter to be the most promising thing. <laughs> On TV this weekend, uh, which is not the most enthusiastic of reviews. And also, some people really will like The Winter King. I I have no questions of that at all. It just is not slash was not the thing that I was in the mode for at the time. So that's all I got this week.
2: For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporters. Now see this newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you as always for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood reporters TV podcast.
1: You can subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. They help spread the word of mouth. You can come say hi to us on various social media platforms where she is rather reliably it with two O's and I am always the fine print F-I-E-N. And if you have questions for future mailbag segments and apparently they're weekly now so by future I mean next week, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at th Oh, yes, that is still TV's top five, the numeral five, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until
2: next week, Dan. With the Lucky lands slot, you can get lucky just about anywhere.